Okay, so we've been talking together on Wednesdays for several weeks now on every thought captive, and we've been talking about answering objections to the faith and, um, first of all, that that's a good endeavor to pursue, and then secondly, that defending the faith is, uh, is something that not only we should do, but something that we can do and that we should be prepared to do so. And we've been working through some of those things together. And so one of the things that we need to discuss that is going to hold our attention for tonight, uh, that many people have an issue with, that they just don't want to hear what you have to say, they don't want to believe in all that you are saying to them because fundamentally there are so many contradictions in the Bible, they just see it as absolute foolishness. Um, you, I don't know how you could possibly believe in a book like that with all these errors, riddled with errors and contradictions, as they might say. Um, has anyone, just by, maybe by a show of hand, someone has actually said this to you? I mean, the Bible just has contradictions in it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good portion of the room. And so what do we say to that? Well, I think the first thing that we should say is, is well, let's talk about some of the examples that you have that are a problem for you, rather than just taking that at face value. The Bible has contradictions, and you say, well, I'm just not aware of what contradictions you're speaking of. And then maybe they actually bring one to your attention, and you say, yeah, I, okay, I see that. I don't have an immediate answer for you. I, <laughs> I recognize that that's potentially a contradiction. I don't believe the Bible has contradictions, uh, but I see it with my eyes, and I honestly, I don't know what to say. Um, so this maybe calls for us being uh, prepared, some preparedness on, on this account. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at what I found to be, at least, um, the 10 most common uh, examples of contradictions in the Bible. And I want to just talk through those and provide some answers. But what I hope this does is it fortifies for us in this room um, a, a big reality and then it will funnel down into these individual examples. And I kind of want to start with this big reality and see how it, it plays itself out in, in some of these examples, okay? So I want to give you three terms that you may or may not be familiar with. And these terms are, all start with I, so they're, they're really easy to remember in that regard. They all start with I, that is inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility, or, um, well, let's just define them, okay? Uh, inspiration concerns the creation of the Bible. Inerrancy concerns the contents of the Bible, whereas infallibility concerns the constraints of the Bible. Okay? I used these words. I've, I've never used these words to say this before, but I thought that maybe it might be helpful in having three words with I, three words with C might help us to maybe better remember. I don't know, that's just my attempt to help us better remember these things. So inspiration deals with the creation of the Bible. That is, how did the Bible come to be? What, uh, and then second inerrancy, it concerns the contents of the Bible, basically in saying, what do we believe about the content of the Bible, not necessarily how it came to be? And the third one, infallibility, concerns the constraints of the Bible. That is, what are the boundaries about, uh, of this thing? Okay, so generally speaking, inspiration speaks to how we, 
how we got the Bible, in other words, that the Bible is inspired, okay? And in, in what way is it inspired? I'm, I'm going to read something for you, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to kind of, that's all I'm going to give on that one for a second, because I'm going to read a more full answer for you. Now, inerrancy, it does talk about the contents of the Bible um, in the sense that when we say the Bible is inerrant, what we're saying is the Bible contains no errors, okay? It's about the contents of the Bible. The Bible contains no errors. Infallibility is very similar to that, but infallibility is talking about the constraints. It's saying what the Bible cannot do. The Bible cannot err, okay? It cannot contain errors. So inspiration is how it came to be. It is inspired by God. We'll talk more about that. Inerrancy is saying that it does not, just a statement of truth, it does not contain any errors. And then number three, infallibility is saying something about its what, what it is not able to do. It is impossible, it is incapable of con containing errors. Why? What's the basis of that? Well, because we believe it to be inspired by God. And if it was inspired by God, then and it contains errors, then something's not right. Unless God himself is not, is, is riddled with errors, which many people believe, actually. So that's very consistent to them, right? But we don't believe the Bible contains errors. We don't believe that God makes mistakes, and he certainly didn't make a mistake in our Bibles. Now, when we come across certain contradictions, you're going to see that errors are made. Okay? Bear with me for a second. Errors are made. And you might be thinking, but you just said the Bible contains no errors and it cannot err. That is true. But we have to get our definitions right. So I'm going to read for you from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And what this is, is it is the, the go-to text for cons uh, the conservative stance on what we mean by biblical inerrancy. Okay? Here's what it says. We affirm, we, we agree with this. Before I read it, I just don't want you to be reading this with too critical an eye. We agree with what's about to be said, okay? We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture in which the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that the copies of translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. Okay, so let me go to this uh, next one. Yeah, I'm going to define that. We deny. So this is an affirmation, what we do believe, and this is the denial, what we do not believe. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that the, absent, uh, the, absence, uh, the absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. So what, is, what does this mean? Um, I'm going to go back to this one. When we're talking about inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility, we're not talking about a translation of the Bible. We're not talking about the English Bible. We're not, that's not what we're talking about. No English version. That's not what we're talking about. And that's very important to get right. Okay? Um, we're actually not even talking about manuscript copies. What we're talking about are the autographs. An autograph is the original document. That's what an autograph is. The there's only one original, right? Like, for example, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians. 
There is only one original 1 Corinthians document that was originally penned, okay? Either by Paul himself or by his scribe, who he dictated to, okay? There was one original copy, okay, that went to the church in Corinth. We no longer have that. What we have are copies of that. Now, when we say the Bible is with the three eyes, it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, we're talking about those original documents, which we have copies of. Okay? So if we find an error in an English Bible or in a couple of manuscripts, as there are, because scribes make mistakes, then are we going to say, well, the Bible has errors? I just said the Bible doesn't have errors, and I just found an error in a manuscript. Oh, no. And if I don't have my terms right, if I don't understand what I'm actually referencing, then I'm going to say, I don't know how to answer you. I don't know, I, I don't know what to say. I believe the Bible doesn't have errors, but I just saw that it does. So I don't know what to do with that. Well, we're talking about the originals. We're not talking about the copies. But notice what, he, what it says here. This is really good. Um, it says, now we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies to the autographic text of Scripture, that is the originals, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from avail available manuscripts with great accuracy. And we further affirm that the copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. So if we have a manuscript or a, a copy or a translation that does not app, uh, faithfully uh, represent the original, then that's not the thing we're talking about. So there may be an error in that. Okay, I don't disagree with you, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the original. Now what's going to be said is, but you don't have any originals, do you? And we're going to say, no, we don't. So you're saying then that you believe the text is perfect in its original form, but you don't have any of the originals? Correct. That's, that is what we're saying. Yes. How do we come to terms with that? Well, the way they, they worded this is, now we believe that in the providence of God that we can, that, that we can accurate, uh, accurately ascertain from available manuscripts with what the original said with great accuracy. Okay? I was trying to fit their wording into my sentence, and it didn't work out very well. Okay? So we can ascertain with great accuracy what the original said by all the manuscripts that we have available to us. Okay? And how does that work? You compare and you contrast, and you see that all of these things contain lots of variations, variants, and uh, how do we deal with that? Okay? And the process of comparing and contrasting manuscripts to determine the original is called what? When you take all the manuscripts, a lot of people in the room should know this. When you take all the manuscripts from time, from all throughout Christian history, and you compare and you contrast them, and your goal is to determine the original, that is called doing what? Textual criticism, right? That is, that is correct. That's what we're doing. Textual criticism is necessary, okay? All right. That's one thing I just wanted to also give you uh, this. Oh, this is good. I already showed you this, but look at what it says now that we've had that conversation. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence re renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. 
Agreed. Okay, so next. Uh, also from the Chicago Statement, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture, and we deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not been resolved vitiate the truth claims of the Bible. Um, vitiate meaning just to destroy or ruin. Okay, so we affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. Correct. Yes, we do. Um, but we deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not been resolved destroy the truth claims of the Bible. So although we don't have absolute resolution to certain things, we can have guesses, uh, we still don't believe that this destroys the truth claims of the Bible. Just because it's hard for our little human brains to grasp sometimes how these things fit together. Okay? So when we're talking, this is, this is my wording here, summary. When we're talking about contradictions or errors in the Bible, we must talk about the originals, the autographs, not the copies, manuscripts. Does that make sense, what I'm saying here? So what that also means then is we're also not talking about the English Bible. Most specifically for many, the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. Okay, in English. I've said for a long time, how fortunate for English-speaking people that God re-inspired his word in English. Many people believe that. That is not true. Okay. Now, when we're talking about contradictions and errors, what exactly are we talking about? I will bring up for an example here for you to look at. I have an image on the screen that I'd like for you to look at, okay? This is from what has become known as the Wicked Bible. Does anybody know what the Wicked Bible is? No, it's just it's, it's just its name. It's just what people have called it. It wasn't, no one said, I want a translation and I want to name it the Wicked Bible. No one people called it this afterwards. What this is, is a very early 1600s uh, copy of the King James Bible. Okay? So here's a close-up on the page. Okay, I'm going to put a bracket around it. Okay, a little box. Do you see it? There's a big problem here because it says, Thou shalt commit adultery. That's not what it says. That is not what the Bible says in the Ten Commandments. But this is a real printed Bible that became famous. There were many, many copies of this. Some copies of it even recently have sold for you know, $100,000 at auction or something because people just want that thing in their hands. Now, when we're talking about errors and contradictions in the Bible, this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about printing errors. Okay? This is pretty obvious that this is not the kind of thing that we're talking about. If someone had a wicked Bible and they open it up and they say, see, the Bible has errors. I'll say, well, I mean, whoever printed that clearly made a mistake. But are you saying that the Word of God actually has errors? Or are you saying that version of the Bible has errors? Oh, that's a totally different conversation, isn't it? That's a completely different conversation. So what are we talking about? So I'm going to give you 10, okay? Um, I'm going to go through these, and I have, I have the question, which is the con supposed contradiction. I have a proposed resolution to the contradiction, and I have the passages of Scripture for reference on each of them, okay? Number one. Now, just remember, I found these as the 10 
most commonly referenced contradictions in Scripture. Okay, this is what I found. This is my research. These are my top ten that I have found out in the world. Okay? But there are others that we're not going to be able to touch tonight. Number one, though. Um, why are there two contradictory creation accounts in Scripture? And so what people will say then is in chapter one of Genesis, you have a creation account. And then in chapter two, you have another creation account, and it's different than chapter one. Has anyone in the room ever heard this argument before? Yes, some of you? Okay, a few of you have. All right. Um, so what's happening here? In Genesis 1, 24 through 31, um, what you see um, is day six in creation. Excuse me. What you see is day six in creation. And uh, then what you see in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4, is also day six of creation. So you think of it this way, is that Genesis chapter 1 is pulling out and it's giving you a, a, a big aerial view of all of creation all seven days or six days, however you want to say it, okay? And it's giving you a big view from the top. And it doesn't include some details. Now, chapter 2 then zooms in specifically on day 6 and spreads it out and says, let's look at the details of day 6. But some people reading this say, no, chapter 1, creation account, chapter 2, another creation account. And that's just simply not what's happening. So there's a very easy resolution to this one and just that they're not two creation accounts. That's not what you see. Chapter 2 is zooming in on day 6 of creation. Why? Because day 6 was awfully special. So here's what happened. Now, let me tell you what happened. That's kind of what's going on there, okay? All right. That was pretty easy. That's a warm-up, okay? Number 2. Was Jehoiachin 8 or 18 when he began to reign? Wonderful question. I actually was watching a video of a guy who is a Muslim apologist. Did you know such a thing existed? A Muslim apologist, and he was walking around with a Bible, and he was going up to people who said they were Christians. And he would open up to those two passages, 2 Kings 24.8 and 2 Chronicles 36.9. And he would say, do you see what it says? And he, he would read, you have to be in the King James Bible. The ESV, if you have it, has corrected this. 2 Kings 24.8, it says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Okay? 2 Chronicles 30, 36.9 says, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months. What? Now, that's an issue. That's a, that's a problem. Wouldn't you say? Now, when you go back and you actually look at the Hebrew text, believe it or not, coming from the primary Hebrew text that we get our Old Testament today, which is the Leningrad Codex, which was made much, much, much later, right? It's, a, it's actually somewhat recent Hebrew Bible from the Masoretes. But anyway, we're looking at a text that's a Hebrew text that simply doesn't, it, it has this error. It's inconsistent. It is seemingly contradictory. What is a resolution to this? Well, I thought 
I, I have a digital version of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I was looking in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I just wanted to see, because that's older. The Dead Sea Scrolls are older than our Leningrad Codex, so I wanted to see does that, uh, that both of these texts are missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So unfortunately, I, I, I don't have an answer for you. And so then I went to the Greek Septuagint, which is also older than the Leningrad Codex, which is where we get our Hebrew text, which is where we get our modern English Old Testament. And I said, well, maybe it has the correct, no, it doesn't, it says 8 and 18. It's also contradictory. So what's the issue? Most people would say a resolution, because by the way, it's not two different guys named Jehoiachin, and it's like one was 8 and one was 18, and they both were happened to be king and reigned for three months in Jerusalem. No, that, that's, that's not what happened, okay? It's the same guy. It's a mistake. It is a mistake, because both can't be true at the same time. I hope you understand that with me, that he can't be 8 and 18 at the same time. Uh, so what exactly happened? The resolution to this, I think the best resolution to this, is simply that there was an early scribal error in Second Chronicles. And a good scribe is going to say what it says. And so when you have an error in a manuscript, you're going to continue on with what it said and you're not gonna make changes in numbers. But probably what happened very early on is that there was a scribal error, and from what I could read at least, that the, <coughs> excuse me, the number 10 uh, is very easily, very easy, kind of think of it like Roman numerals, okay? You know how there are just markings that represent, there's like one mark, the X, that represents 10. And it would be very easy, maybe, if a manuscript got smudged, that one simple little mark could make the number different, or something like that. And evidently, the mark for the number 10 to make it 18 rather than 8 was very small, and so this could have happened very easily. And then that just continued on through transmission history. Now, do you think other people before our modern era recognized this issue, such as all the scribes copying all the manuscripts, the guy that did the guy that copied, you know, 2 Kings, for example, also copied 2 Chronicles? And many people did this. It's not that they were unaware, but they were very, very slow to make intentional changes to the text, which should tell you something, right? That should tell you something. Now, if you have an issue with there being scribal errors in the Bible, then you just don't properly have a right understanding of inspiration, we do not believe the Bible is inspired in the copies of the original, but in the original itself. All manu there are no two Bible manuscripts the same, and you need to know that. So the process of textual criticism is necessary. It does not devalue the word. It values the word very highly. In fact, the more copies we have, the more accurate we can we can uh, make our, our claims to the original because there's more to compare to, right? But the more copies, guess what you're also going to have? M yeah, more differences, right? Absolutely. This is not a bad thing, okay? This is a recognition that the transmission of Scripture, although divine, under divine providence and care, was a human work. God used people. Okay, next one. Does God send evil spirits? Because that seems contradictory to the nature of God. First Samuel sixteen fourteen. 
and these are the, all three of these passages. Listen, listen to what they say. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. I don't know how to feel about that. 1 Samuel 18.10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Okay. Judges 9.23. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. What just happened there in all three of those passages? Well, it seems to very clearly say that God sent an evil spirit. Now, you might be wondering, well, the word evil is probably not evil. It's the same word used in Genesis 2.9, talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the exact same word. So whatever that was, God sent it in these, two, in these three circumstances. That God sent this spirit of evil. But we just talked about the nature of evil last week. So this one is a lot easier for us to understand that God uses evil for his glory. However, God is not the author of evil. God does not do evil, but God certainly uses evil for his purposes. Yes, all that must be true. Think of also uh, Isaiah 45, 7. I like this one a little bit more because it's theological. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And wouldn't you know it, that word calamity right there is the same word evil. But you might say, but God doesn't create evil. Right. So then how should we understand that? That's interesting to think about, isn't it? Evil, just like a lot of other words, this is, I don't want to go down this, this well too far, but a word does not always, it cannot always mean the fullness of its semantic domain. So we have words that mean different things in different contexts, don't we? It's the same exact word, but it, it doesn't mean the same thing in every given context. A word never means the full range of its semantic domain in one in particular usage. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I hope that it does. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. But we can't say that the word evil, which has a semantic domain of multiple different meanings, such as calamity or disaster, and that it always means evil, right? Because context determines, really, at the end of the day, what the word actually means. And what is being said here? Well, God is putting things in pairs. And he's saying, I create light, I create darkness. I make well-being, and what is the opposite? So light is the opposite of darkness. What is the opposite of well-being? Not well-being. In other words, a calamity, and calamities are most often brought about by what we would call evil situations. And that's how the words are related. Okay, maybe a better one for you uh, if we're thinking about God sending evil spirits, okay, or harmful spirits. 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. No, 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 no. 2 Corinthians 12.7, excuse me. 2 Corinthians 12.7. So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And who sent that? Who sent the messenger of Satan to Paul? God did. 
Are we okay with that? I mean, we should be, because that's what happened. That's what God did. Okay? And it's okay. That doesn't demean God's character in any way whatsoever that he does this. In fact, it shows how sovereign he truly is. All right, we'll move on from that. Number four. Ahaziah, was he 22 or 42 when he began to reign? Okay, this is the same as the other, and it's the same type of uh, mistake. Okay, the difference here is between the, the number 22 and 42, and yes, they are different in the Bible, and yes, it is talking about the exact same guy. Now, if you read this in the ESV, it's going to have the same number because they recognized that it should be the same number. But if you're reading out of a KJV, and I think a few other translations, it's actually going to be the two different numbers. It's going to be 22 and 42. But I promise you, he wasn't two simultaneous ages. Okay, he was either 22 or he was 42. All right, well, which one was he? This is the same thing. By the way, yes, I did check. Both texts are missing the Dead Sea Scrolls. Both texts have the same wording in the... Uh, in the Septuagint, uh, so I, we can't resolve it uh, uh, with, with these issues, okay? So, um, actually, you know what? On this one, it doesn't even say 22 years old in the Septuagint. It says 20 years old, so deal with that, I guess. Um, but anyway, what are we saying with all of this? The whole point is to show you that there are categorical contradictions in Scripture, and this is one of those categories where there was an early scribal mistake made. And one of these two numbers is correct. Which one seems more appropriate? Well, in this one, it's actually pretty clear because his father, Jehoram, was 40 years old when he died. And Ahaziah began to reign immediately upon his father's death. So in other words, he could not have been 42 years old. If his father was 40 when he died, if you're following that, okay, that can't happen. So clearly, he was how old? He was, 20, he was 22. Okay, so uh, that's, there you go. That's how that kind of stuff works. Why didn't anybody fix that? I think I, maybe I already talked about that. They were very, very slow to look at a number and say, I'm going to change that number. Why? No, you don't do that. Now, if a mistake is made, that's very different, isn't it, than an intentional change to a manuscript. Okay, Matthew 1, 6, verses... Luke 3.31, what is the correct genealogy of Jesus? Because there are two different genealogies given in Scripture, and they are very, very different. Has anyone ever realized this? In Matthew, you are given a genealogy of Jesus, and then in Luke 3.31, you're given it. Well, it's more than that. Okay, I'm, I'm giving you a specific verse there. But in Matthew 1, you're given a genealogy. In Luke 3, you're given a genealogy and they are not the same genealogy. Do you have a problem with that? Did Jesus simultaneously come from both of these lines? Uh, well, yes, because he came from both his mother and his father. Didn't you both come from your mother and your father? But some would say, but uh, he didn't actually come from his father. Oh man, so now we have another issue to deal with. Because you're right, he didn't come from his father. However, he did belong to him, and he was rightfully his, legally. And so it traces two different lines, and there are actually two resolutions to this. Um, and I'm not sure, there are actually more, but I think both of these are, have a sense of validity to them, so I'm going to share both with you. 
Resolution number one to this is that Matthew traces the genealogy through Joseph and Luke traces the genealogy through Mary. That's the first resolution. That may or may not be correct. There's a second possible resolution and it's just the opposite. That Matthew traces the genealogy through Mary if you want to look at that, turn to Matthew 1, and I'll explain that. And Luke chase, traces the genealogy through Joseph. Look at Matthew chapter 1. I want to show you this one because I think it's very interesting. Should you ever be talking to someone about this? Which maybe you will because a lot of people find this objectionable to the consistency of the Bible and the validity of Jesus Christ being an actual person. It says... In verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph and the husband of Mary, who, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. In Luke 3.31, nope, excuse me. I don't have the right reference, so I'll just have to look at it myself. It says in Luke chapter 3 that Joseph was the son of Heli. Over here it says Joseph was this, the son of Jacob. We got an issue. We don't even know who Jesus' grandfather was. Or do we? So here's the argument from Matthew chapter 1. I'll just go ahead and give you the answer. Is that many believe, and there have been a few manuscripts found with this evidence, instead of it, instead of it saying, and... Uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, it actually says Joseph, the father of Mary. In other words, that Mary's father's name was also Joseph, and so this was his lineage. Whereas Luke is tracing the lineage of uh, Joseph, her husband. Okay? By the way, they're both the son of David either way. They just trace a different line from David. Okay. One from Nathan, one from Solomon. And they both, both sides, both sides of the tree come down to Jesus. So he is doubly the son of David, which is pretty good. Okay. Anyway, that's that one. Number six. How did Judas Iscariot die? You've wondered about this one. Maybe, I'm, maybe you have. I'm certain. Okay. Maybe I'm certain. I'm certain that you're maybe thought of it before. All right, how did Judas Iscariot die? Two seemingly contradictory accounts of how Judas Iscariot died. I'm going to say both accounts are true and not contradictory. Um, in Matthew 27, it says, Judas comes in, he is regretful of this situation, and he takes the money, he gives it back. Um, and then in verse 6, it says, But the chief priest taking the silver... They said it's not lawful to put this money back in the treasury because it's blood money. So they took counsel together and they bought them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Um, then, the, then it was fulfilled saying they spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. They took 30 pieces of silver. Okay, so that's how it fulfills prophecy. Uh, Matthew says that quite a bit. Okay. Um, it's probably important that I read verse 5. I started at verse 6. I apologize. When he threw the money down, it says, 
into the temple, he departed and he went out and he hung himself. Hanged himself. I don't know why that's the past tense of hung, but, or of hang, but it is. Hanged, not hung, for whatever reason. Okay, so he hanged himself. Uh, but that's not what Acts chapter 1 says about him. It doesn't necessarily say he threw the money down, he went and he hanged himself, and then the chief priest bought a field, and they called the field the field of blood. It's a totally seemingly different situation. Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, it says, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted to share in his ministry. Now, this man acquired a field. Judas acquired the field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, Ekeldema, which is field of blood. So which story is true? Because this story, if, if we just all we read is what we see here, is that he went out and he bought a field, and he was strolling around checking out his field, and he, he just burst open and died in the field. But that's not... If we take both accounts together, I think we come up with a, a, a reasonable situation where Judas <clears throat> hangs himself in, a, in the potter's field. And the money that was Judas's, right, because they couldn't put the money back, they took Judas's money. So Judas then did acquire the field. It was his money, okay? Then they went and bought the field where Judas hung himself, Okay? And then they used it for further purposes of people being buried there. And as he was hanging there on the tree and he started to decompose, his body fell to the ground and burst open in that field. Both stories are true. It's just a matter of how you look at it. And this idea of perspective, really, it, it, it closes the gap of contradiction for a lot of things. It's just a matter of perspective of taking eyewitness accounts and different people's story concerning what happened and merging the two together to say, the way you're seeing things right now is not the way I'm seeing. I'm literally in this room. We're involved in the same situation, but what you're looking at and what I'm looking at, very different. It doesn't mean that they're contradictory, right? So just because two things are from very different perspectives doesn't mean that they're contradictory. And that's just a concept to take with you. Number seven, what was the inscription on the cross? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say something different. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have variations about what the actual inscription on the cross was. I don't know if you've ever compared these or not. If you, if you have a, um, there's something called a harmony of the gospels, um, and it takes all four gospels, and it kind of puts them in columns, and it lets you read some will have some sections blank because they don't talk about that in their gospel, but if you have a harmony of the gospels, they will have columns and you can read all the gospels simultaneously. And you'll notice in this section, if you read across, all of them are, they say the inscription on the cross was different than what it actually said. Um, so for example, Matthew 27, 37, it, uh, in Matthew's it says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's what Matthew said the cross said. Mark says all it said was the king of the Jews. In Luke, it says 
this is the king of the Jews, okay? It doesn't include the name Jesus like Matthew's did, so a little different. And then in John, it says, Pilate wrote an inscription on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And does anyone know what that also adds? What language was this written in? Aramaic? Greek and Latin. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And why? Because those were the languages of the day. Aramaic, not Hebrew, was what was spoken by the Hebrew people. Okay? It was a version of Hebrew. It's called Aramaic. So um, it wouldn't be Aramaic and Hebrew simultaneously. Okay? It was just Aramaic. Most likely this was the language spoken by Jesus and the apostles was Aramaic. Okay? So Aramaic. So it was certainly written in Aramaic given that he was a Jew. And this was a warning to other Jews, okay? Uh, so, but it was also written in Latin because Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire, and this was a legal decision, so of course you'd want to write it in Latin, right? Okay, and then also Greek. Why Greek? Because Greek was the language of the common people. So you want the common people to know about it as well. And so, anyway, what's a, what's a resolution to this? I actually have a quote on this one. In essentially, what, what, what this answer is saying, I, I think there's sound reason for this is that the inscription um, varied slightly based on translation because we know it was in three languages. But as you know, when you write something in another language, it word for word does not always work out, does it? And sometimes it's uh, given a little more or a little less. And some people actually think that the Latin, Greek, and Aramaic were written at different points in time rather than writing all three at the same time because they realized that they needed to write it because people were asking questions about it. And so they just put it in all the languages eventually. I think that's possible as well. I think we have many resolutions to this. Um, but, uh, well, I, I don't know that I really need to read that quote that I have here, but I think you get the idea is that if it was written in Hebrew, it might have said one thing in a certain way. And then when you wrote it in Greek, it had a variation to it in Greek. And so when it's recorded, which, by the way, a lot of people, did you know that the book of Matthew, it is believed by many, was actually written in Aramaic completely and then translated into Greek, not written in Greek originally. Many people believe that. But anyway, um, so that, that could play a role as well, just how these things translated throughout time with the language. Okay. Number eight. Did the women tell the others about Jesus? This is upon the resurrection. So think about the resurrection. We're at Easter Sunday, and uh, the women then have an encounter with Jesus. And what do they do right, after the, right afterwards? What do they do? Uh, well, in our minds, maybe we think they ran and they told the other disciples. Of course, because they were excited, right? Or did they? Or did they do that? Um, so here's the... The passages of concern, I have them up there for you. Uh, Matthew 28, 8, so they departed, they quickly ran from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. Right, yes, okay. Luke 24, 9, uh, they ran, they told all these things to the eleven and the rest. Good. Mark 16, 8, and they went out, and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Wait a minute. That's completely opposite of what the other two say. Mark 16, 8 says they said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. 
But Matthew and Luke say they ran and immediately told all the disciples. So which is it? This is contradictory. Um, and I think a very simple resolution to this is, is pretty obvious, that they didn't tell anybody as they were running to go tell the disciples. They didn't say anything to anybody because they were frightened, they were terrified. Actually, all of them were terrified because she knew where they were, and where were they? Hiding. They were hiding. Why? They were all afraid. So are they going to tell anybody? Just randomly as they're running down the road, go to meet the disciples? He's alive! He's alive! Jesus is alive! And they're running, they're telling everybody on the street, and they're telling... No. They told nobody because they were afraid. But they went immediately to the disciples, and they told them. I think that's a better harmony of the situation. All right. Number nine. We're going to make it. Number nine. Do works justify a person? So a lot of people in the unbelieving world have a question about this. Um, and this is a, a contrast between Paul and James, which many of you are familiar with. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we know that salvation is not of works. Paul just said it cut and dry. James 2.24 you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> it's like if ever there was a seeming contradiction, there it is right in your face. Because they, they seem to say the exact opposite things. You are not saved uh, through works. Uh, you are saved through your works. So what does this mean? The simple resolution, because we're familiar with all, we're not just picking up those verses, but we're taking them in context of what all what Paul says and all what James says, because James also says, a faith like that, a dead faith, is no faith at all. A faith that does not work is not faith. That's what James says. So he agrees with Paul that faith does save, but what James is adding is, if your faith is genuine, it will be evidenced by works. And if it is not evidenced by works, then you're just proving that the faith that you say you have is not genuine faith. And that kind of faith doesn't save anybody. Okay? Number 10. John 3.16 verses John 6.37-44. Is God sovereign or is man free? Which is it? A lot of people have this big debate and this big question. Um, my answer to that is that the freedom of man is not more free than the freedom of God. Okay? If man is free, you have free will, free agency, which we don't deny. We just believe that the freedom of God is greater than the freedom of men. Right? So if God wants to do something, but you don't want to do it, God just has to say, man, I just wish that you wanted to do what I wanted you to do. I guess I'm stuck. Or do we believe that the freedom of God is greater than the freedom of men and that God can do whatever he wants regardless of if you want to do it or not? Uh, yes. God is not captive to your freedom. You are captive to his. So how do the two exist, though? How do we, how do we, how do we make that merge, though? We can make that theological summary and we all say yeah you know but john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life 
So this seems free. It seems like each and every person ever created has the equal opportunity, and God is simply waiting around for people to get with it already. I just made it available. If you would just, come on, get with it. I made it possible if just anyone would, come on, I'm waiting. But I, I can't intervene in your life because your freedom is so important to me. It's worth you going to hell for eternity. I just, I can't get involved in your freedoms here. But that is not correct. We all know and thank God for his grace that he is the one who sovereignly intervened in our lives. We did not intervene in his. He intervened in ours. This is our God. So there is no, it is only a seeming contradiction because man is free, true. And God is sovereign, that is true. But it's simply the case that God's freedom is far greater than the freedom of man. That is true, okay? And God does not value human freedom to the extent that he uh, uh, just leaves you to your own because then we'd all be left to our own and none of us would come to the Lord, right? What does John 6 say, by the way? I, I didn't read that. John 6, 37 says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But the Jews grumbled about him and said, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So who really seems like they're in charge here? Um... Jesus said, this is nothing for you to get all bent out of shape about because God's got this worked out. Jesus came to do the will of the Father and he is not going to mess it up. Okay, this continues in John chapter 17. I just want to point out though, who wrote John 3.16? John. Who wrote John 6.37 through 44? John. So it's quite obvious. John was not contradicting himself when he said these things. Okay, um, both are simultaneously true. Okay, it's simply that the freedom of man is not more free than the freedom of God. Okay, he has freedom to save. Um, there you have it. Okay, that's a really quick nutshell answer to all of those. I understand that, but that's something, isn't it? Uh, it's at least giving us an, an idea of what some of the common objections are to the Bible itself. Because as we started this whole thing, what do people need? They need the word of God don't they? Um, is there power in the word of God? Yes. How will they hear without someone preaching? Right? How are they to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? Okay? So, um, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. So, we have to come back down to scripture, don't we? Now, if people say, but I don't believe the Bible because it has lots of contradictions in it, and you say, give me some examples and let's work through them together. I, just, I guess I wanted to make this idea accessible to you. 
this, we can touch this, okay? We can work through these things, but even if there are some that we say, listen, I'm not quite sure how to resolve that one, are you okay with that? Are you okay with, with us not having the perfect answer to resolve a, a potential contradiction? I mean, that's what the statement I read at the very beginning says, and, and I think that is a good place to stand with this. But we are a reasonable people. We are a logical people, as is our God, okay? And we work through these things together, and we can provide answers, and we should, and we should be ready. We should be prepared, and uh, this is all part of that process, isn't it? All right, well, I'm going to pray and uh, end our time together. Lord, thank you so much for our time together today. And uh, just in talking about these things, looking at several passages in your word, and, and it, uh, it reaffirms for us just several things. One is that you, in your sovereignty, you could have dropped a book for us out of heaven, but you chose not to do that. You chose to use men, and you have shown how raw this process can truly be using men to copy your word. But you have not left us with a little witness, but a fantastic, great witness with many, many, many manuscripts confirming what we believe to be true. And uh, I pray that we would continue to grow in our faith and be encouraged that the word that we have is the very word of God. And I pray that you would build us up and encourage us together. Fortify our faith with these things. Let us be more confident in your word and let us be bold for your word. And I pray that we would do it all for your glory and for your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.